Welcome to ThinkScope. We're two Bay teens who each month explore a complicated idea or controversial topic that most people assume teens are too naive to understand or have an opinion about. We are passionate about discussing the tough questions in life and having brutally honest conversations. We hope our podcast will help our listeners gain an understanding into a teen's mental metamorphosis, the process of becoming an, a mature adult, as well as insight into how we think about complicated topics. I'm your co-host, Megan Mehta. And I'm your other co-host, Alexis Bondarenko. And let's get into this month's conversation on ThinkScope. This month on our very first episode, we're going to discuss an important topic which has a lot of depth, a lot of history, and significance in the development and structure of our society. We're going to be discussing racism in America. As a lot of people know right now, on May 25th, 2020, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, was killed by an officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota after being arrested for allegedly using a counterfeit bill. His death sparked a movement against racial injustice, followed by weeks of protests and efforts made not only by thousands of Americans and celebrities, but also a movement that has swept the globe, bringing the much-needed attention to this much bigger problem in the world. And so it's only fitting that Megan and I discuss social injustice and racism. Welcome to ThinkScope Podcast, Episode 1, Racism in America Through a Teenager's Perspective. Megan, given not only the challenges that the coronavirus pandemic has had on families, but also the many challenges that families of color have faced before this, how do you think that systematic racism has affected economic equality in our world right now? I think systematic racism uh, has affected economic inequality in a very unique way right now because it's amplified due to COVID. A lot of minorities that have been Uh, experiencing systematic racism, they typically work um, like necessary jobs during the pandemic. So they are considered like the um, essential workers, right? But those essential workers don't make a lot of money. So that combined with the fact that a a bunch of people that are working essential worker jobs have lost their jobs, and there's people that still have their jobs, that is kind of uh, increasing the economic inequality gap because there's people, there's millions of people that are not working or are working for very little money and people that are doing fine and are able to uh, still support themselves during the pandemic. So I think the pandemic has amplified how systematic racism affects economic inequality. I have a follow-up question for you. What do you think about the abolition of police? So um, when I first heard about the abolition of police, I was a little bit worried because in a world where there's no police system or no police-like system, I wasn't exactly sure how that was going to work. So I think maybe having a new organization, which is what people are proposing, is a much better option, and I'm totally for that. I think either there needs to be a new organization, new system, or dramatic, dramatic reforms within the police system itself. And uh, for our listeners that don't know about the abolition of police, after 
the protests against police brutality, there's been major talks about how we can reform the police or change the police in order to better serve the community. So my follow-up question uh, to the abolition of police is, what kind of changes need to be made within the police department specifically to sort of serve the community better? Do you think that there should be more rules and regulations on the use of force, or should there be more training? I think there needs to be a little bit of a balance between the two, because you can train an officer as much as you feel is needed, but once they go out into the field, they're kind of on their own. So you can have written rules of things that they can and cannot do, but yet those rules that are written down are not always what follows. So I feel like reforms that need to happen need to be strict policies of not giving officers second chances when they do use unneeded force. And also things like no chokeholds, which is what a lot of police departments are doing right now, is a great start to stricter reforms. But there needs to be a bigger system of really just tackling down on police brutality and how it's used to make sure that that doesn't happen. So what I'm hearing a lot is like there needs to be a balance of both in order to effectively stop police brutality in multiple aspects because there's multiple aspects of course. Yeah because it's really hard to train someone not to use brutality when when they go out into the field they might think it's needed. So I think maybe training them of when it's needed and when it's not and using effective skills to punish or fire those police when they do use brutality that's not needed. Okay, so let's start talking about racism just as a whole right now, um, which not only happens globally, but let's talk specifically in America, especially right now. We can start narrowing down into the philosophical ideas in the minds of racists. And so Megan, I wanna ask you, why do you think racists justify their behaviors? That's a great question, Alexis. I think there's a lot of reasons about how and why racist people justify their behaviors. Um, I think the main one is like the way they were brought up or the environment they were brought up in. If the people around them are racist and being a racist, horrible person is considered normal in their society and their little like niche area, then obviously they will grow up thinking that it's completely fine to be prejudiced and biased against people of color and treat them like lesser beings. And so I think one way they justify their behavior is because they consider it to be normal. Another way is that they just consider themselves to, to be superior. And I feel like a lot of this stems from maybe being insecure of not actually being superior than anyone because no one is superior than anyone else, regardless of skin color or race or like, regardless of anything. So I think they, after they realize that there's nothing that proves that they are better than anyone else, they feel like they need to do something in order to support that. Do you think that when you're talking about this kind of, um, they're trying to bring out this sort of racist idea because they don't see that they're superior around them, do you think that leads into more kind of violent behaviors or just racist behaviors in general? Um, wow, that's a really interesting question. Because, I mean, racist can be little things that sometimes people don't even notice, things that they say that they don't realize are racist, but it's also people who specifically go out and target and are violent 
towards others. Yeah, I think there's like, if we were to generalize racism into three categories, in my opinion, there would be the category of unconscious, uh, unconscious racism and bias against people of color, conscious racism and bias against people of color, and then violence against people of color. So I think unconscious racism, everybody has it, everybody does it to different extents. It doesn't matter if you're a black person, Indian person, Asian person, everyone has unconscious bias and unconscious racist behaviors, every single person. But it just varies on how intense that is. And if it's more intense and people realize that they're being racist or they know that their actions or words are hurting people of color, then I think that would be conscious racism. And that's a lot of what we see, you know, on like Instagram videos or videos that go viral, the Karens, the white Karens that kind of are very, you know, just very people of color. They are definitely consciously racist, but they may like to believe that they're unconsciously racist, um, but they know they're racist. And then, of course, people that are violent, it would be like the KKK, It would be uh, people that commit hate crimes in um, uh, churches or in schools against people of color. Um, It would just be people that are willing to kill just based on the color of your skin. And and I think a lot of white supremacists are um, in this category because for some reason they feel like they have to be extremely violent against another being, the orange clown. Um, is definitely one of them. I love how you called him the orange clown. I've never heard that before. Oh, it's my favorite. Orange clown, Cheeto. I have names for him. I will never Um, so yeah, exactly. for you, do you agree in the sense that racism can have to, has to do with something with upbringing and um, where they, you know, basically how they were raised in the environment they were in? I definitely think that has a big part. Growing up, um, children in any location look at the adults around their lives and although you may think that these kids aren't listening they pick up on everything and they're learning from the adults and the people that they're raised by and so although parents or grandparents or whoever are the mentors in their lives may not see themselves as racist it's sometimes the little things that are said that can really bring that child to grow up in a sense of feeling that way or even acting that way. And along with that, location-wise, I guess just in America, there are definitely places that are known to be a little bit more racist, but I also think that it's not necessarily location. I think it's how that location sees racism and the history of racism in that place, if you if that makes sense. So like the history of racism and sort of subtle behaviors around um, the adults that are involved in their lives sort of stems this idea, but it's sort of unconscious until they become an adult and it becomes more obvious throughout their life. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's, I've, then, that is a very um, good point because I never thought about like the little things that adults do that kids pick up on. I always think of like the big things that they might do. So that's great. Exactly. And then along with this, Um, with children especially being affected by these adults in their lives how do you think that maybe like in school for example or in their households can be better taught against these sort of racist views that's really tough because I feel like 
when you're a kid and you're, you know, you're growing up and you're learning about the world around you, you learn mainly in two ways. You learn at school and you learn at home around with the people around you and how they are, uh, which supports your previous idea, of course. And so in school, you know, they can do a better job of teaching and teaching kids the history of racism, where it started, why it started, the history of slavery, and not to sugarcoat slavery as like, oh, it was bad, you know, slavery sucked, it was not ethical, let's move on. No, they need to dive deep into what slavery was like. They need to show pictures of people that have scars on their backs from being whipped, from slaves being tortured, being raped, and like, Obviously, you would have to show that not maybe at like age five or 10, but maybe at age like 13 or 14. Yeah, because uh, I didn't know really at the depth of it what slavery was until maybe eighth grade. And I kind of thought my whole history lessons all before that had kind of been a lie because, yeah, no one really told us the truth of what it was, of what it was like to live during that time. Exactly. And it was just so like after seeing those pictures, I think the kids will realize that, oh my God, oh my God, that was so bad. We treated those humans, my fellow humans, not like as if they were less than us. We didn't even treat them like they were alive. Like they were, like we treat dogs better than that. We treat like any animal better than that. We treated them less than living beings. We treated them as objects, as inanimate objects that have no feelings, no desires, no passions. So I think just very powerfully and very authentically conveying the horrors of slavery and how bad racism has been throughout history because it's been shown time and time again. I think showing all of that will prove that racism is really bad and then hopefully spark um, an idea that kids should question what the adults in their lives are doing. Like it would spark the necessity for kids to question what um, is around them especially if what they're being taught in school doesn't match what's going on at home. They're going to especially begin to question the values that maybe some of the adults in their lives have. And it's actually really interesting, Megan, because I had never thought about how teaching the history of it would actually be more effective than maybe like soft um, redlining communities and integrate more sort of diverse schools. I think that's a much better solution on top of the including more diverse cultures and races into the school system. Exactly. And I've read so much about, like, you know, there's, like, diversity week, like, let's celebrate diversity, but that is completely, utterly useless until we talk about systematic racism. And I like that you brought up redlining uh, zones in cities because that is, like, literally one of the primary uh, reasons that systematic racism started. It's, like, one of the main uh, contributors and um, just sort of talking about that history before we talk about diversity. We need to talk about the history first. Um, so now I have a question for you. With the election coming up, of course, kids are paying attention, I think in politics now more than ever because they're interested, they wanna know. Uh, do you think kids are more involved in politics now? Um, and also, do you think there are more prevalent ideas in what's happening today with the major part of campaigns or like who decides where to put their votes. And by that, I mean, do you think the news around racism right now will affect the election and how people will vote in the future? 
I definitely think so. And I really hope it affects the election in a positive way. Because I think, especially right now, um, a lot of people, at least for you and me, Megan, our age are beginning to be able to vote. And our generation is kind of known for being really progressive and trying to change these things because growing up, we've seen these things on the news. Again, you know, going back to the part of how children look around and see the adults in their lives, and we know this thing. We've noticed that there's problems in the world. We've noticed that we don't want these things anymore, and we need change because it's not happening. And so if it's not going to happen, we might as well just do it ourselves. It's what I think we've come to with our generation. And so I'm really excited for people of a younger age, people our age, to be able to vote because it is going to cause change because there's a majority of us who are ready to vote, who do want to vote. And especially the media has a lot with this of showing us problems in the world and we're trying to find solutions of how to fix it. I definitely agree with you. I think after the 2018 um, election, where, you know, all the Congress people were elected, there were many campaigns that promoted registering to vote and actually voting. And that, man, the results of that were incredible. Like we have AOC, Ayanna Presley, along with like countless, countless others. And they've made some real changes and they've stood up to older members of Congress and are very conservative. And I think um, every generation, young generation, is more progressive than the older generation. But the problem is that people don't vote. So I think after seeing, you know, what happens when people don't vote, a.k.a. the Cheeto in the White House, I think it will kind of inspire young people to vote because they will see that this matters. Like, you can't just protest and then forget about it. You need to vote. And then along with actually protesting, um, Megan, I know you were telling me about um, narrowing down on how racism is different within cultures and how right now a lot of Asian Americans are supporting Black Lives Matter movement um, and that that's compared to racist Asian Americans. And so I was wondering if you could maybe like tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, so racism in Asian American culture is really, really weird. It's very unusual. When you think of racism in the Asian American community, I feel like a lot of people don't understand what that looks like because it's sort of subtle. It's very subtle, actually. It's the type of thing where your parents might look down upon you or kind of um, stop talking to you if you date a person that is African American or you marry a person that's African American. They might be okay if you're friends with them, but uh, they might not let you go over to their house for a sleepover. And so it's like these very subtle things, but they speak volumes about um, the sort of outlook Asian American people, more, more, mostly people from older generations and how their outlook on uh, people of color, people that are black is so twisted. Um, and of course, like, I've never heard of Asian American racists, you know, doing very violent things against black people. I've never heard of like a, a shooting uh, conducted by an Asian American person. So it's mostly in the subtle sense. Um, and it's very little, little things throughout their everyday lives that most people will just dis dismiss as like, oh, it's whatever, it's fine. But it actually speaks volumes about how we view um, the African-American population.
Oh, I actually had no idea about that. Do you think that then this is kind of a generational sort of racism happening through generations of Asian American families? Yeah, sort of. And by Asian American, we are including obviously Indian people, Chinese people, Japanese, Vietnamese, Laos, like everybody, right? And so it's really weird because I feel like each subset of, you know, Asian culture and population has a very different outlook on um, African American people. In general, what I said before about, you know, they might not appreciate the fact that you are dating a black person or that uh, you will, you want to go to a sleepover to your black friend's house, like those sort of things I think are universal in that community. For the most part, there's always, uh, there's always uh, exceptions. But for example, I think a good example is the Indian community. I'm Indian, so I, I feel like I can speak a little bit about this. A lot of Indian people that are from the boomer generation of India, you know, they were born in that time period. A lot of them lived in South Africa. Gandhi was in South Africa. So we've, we know African people, but there's a long history of trade and interactions of Indian people with Black people from South Africa and other surrounding countries. So I wonder why there's still a little bit of bias against uh, Black people. It's sort of like a really weird history, and it's very incoherent unless you see it firsthand. So it's really hard to describe. Actually, really interesting. So it not only happens in, within Asian Americans in America specifically, but also in Asian sort of countries. Um, yeah, basically, that's a good way to summarize it. Like my, uh, hold on, my cousin's wife's best friend. Is that right? Yeah, my cousin's, cousin's wife. Oh, yeah, I yeah, got it. <laughs> my cousin's wife. All Indian people are like this. We just know everybody and everyone. So cousin's wife's best friend, she came to America for the first time. She landed in like Chicago, I think, her plane. And of course, there's a high African-American population in Chicago. And she, I remember she was telling me that she was terrified, A, because she's never seen African-American people in India um, ever, because they don't traditionally live there, obviously. And second thing is that the media in India and in American movies and stuff have always shown African-American people as gangsters. And she was also in like the Chicago area, which is known for a high crime rate, right? So she was sort of nervous, but she talked about like her journey that over time she realized that all of those notions were wrong and that she needs to um, accept uh, African-American people and all African people, all black people. They're just like us. And that's exactly one of the problems that is why we're here today, is why a lot of people are protesting, is that media has a big effect on what people think. And although you might be scrolling through your phone or whatever and not even realize it, you're subconsciously making these sort of racist ideas, even if you're not making any sort of racist behaviors. It's these little subconscious things that the media projects on the African-American community. Exactly. And that's like a whole other conversation, I feel like, how the media portrays African-American people throughout history. It's really, really, it's so twisted. It's really disgusting. I think that kind of leads into um, you are talking about, you know, your history and then you being um, Asian-American, and that kind of leads into the idea of generational racism and how racism has not only affected the ancestors and even still today the families of African 
African-Americans and all people of colors, but um, how our ancestors were affected by racism and how that also affects us today. Exactly. And I have a question for you, actually. You are of Ukrainian descent, yes? Yeah. So do you think generational racism and prejudice against your ancestors has affected um, your values today and affected your family today? And before you answer that, would you mind providing like a little bit of background about your ancestors if you feel comfortable? Yeah, oh my gosh, of course. So I am a second generation American. Um, my grandparents grew up in Ukraine and right during World War II, you know, a lot of nasty stuff was happening. Um, so they were trying to get out, trying to come to America, trying to get more into Europe where it was more safe. And so they were pretty much just at the wrong time, at the wrong place, is kind of how I can describe that whole thing. And it ended them actually being put into concentration labor camps during the Holocaust. Even though my family is not Jewish, um, they did not kill them because one, they were not Jewish, and second of all, they could work. So they're like, okay, we might as well just have you do labor and have you do stuff. So they were in concentration camps for a long time, and I remember hearing stories of how my grandfather, when he was young, like 13, but 13 is right around the age where you remember stuff really vividly, and he was one of the people that was actually dumping the dead bodies into pits and stuff. But anyway, sorry, I'm getting off topic. So they were able to escape and were liberated by American soldiers. And they came to America. And so right now I'm half Ukrainian. Um, but one of the things that doesn't really affect me too much today, but only the fact that I don't have any really Ukrainian culture within my family. Like I don't speak Ukrainian. I don't really eat Ukrainian food. I don't really celebrate any Ukrainian like holidays because when my grandparents came just like even today immigrants are seen not so well in America a lot of people don't like immigrants and so my family got rid of all their culture got rid of all their accents and pretty much just made it they wanted to seem like they were American even though they weren't that to me is First of all, your grandparents' story is incredible. I mean, I'm so happy that they were able to build their lives in America. But yeah, I mean, you wouldn't be here otherwise. And we would I know. I'm so happy. Exactly. Um, but I'm just so fascinated by discrimination from white people against other European people in general. Um, if you were to consider, would you consider Jewish and Italian people white? Uh, yeah, I would. I think that's kind of just based on, like, skin color, though. But yeah, I definitely would. Yeah, so what I'm really fascinated by is that if you were to consider them white, hi historically, you know, in U U.S. history and internationally, they've been discriminated against by other white people. So there's sort of like a racism of, like, white people against other white people with different cultures. I see, like, a very weird pattern emerging. Like, I don't understand why, but that's a pattern. Yeah. I also know that you're a first-generation American. Kind of going off that, if you want to share your ancestral story and how you got here to America? Yeah, sure. So I'm first-generation American uh, from Indian descent, as you said. 
my parents immigrated here. Um, I forgot when. I should know this. My apologies. They've been here for a lot longer than most other Indian people in California. Like, my dad's been here for, like, more than 20 years. Like, it's been a while. Oh, okay. So that's how we basically got here. Um, my parents worked damn hard in school. Like, holy crap. Major props to them. I didn't appreciate it before, but, like, the more I talk to them these days about, like, all the things they had to do and how hard they had to work, um, I appreciate it a lot more. So they worked really damn hard in school. They got here, um, and then they basically built a beautiful life for my sister and I. Oh, I'm happy you're here. Does he ever tell stories about racist experiences that he had in moving here or even just living here in America? Um, he doesn't really talk about it. I've asked him a couple times, but he knows that it was really weird during 9-11. Weird sort of impact on Indian Americans during that time because we're not we're not Muslim we don't like we're not from the Middle East but a lot of people don't understand that so it was really weird yeah actually it's really interesting I kind of forgot that 9-11 probably had a lot to do with racism towards Middle Eastern families and people of Middle Eastern descent like I was watching the office the other day and they made a comment about that that was supposed to be a joke but did come off racist in that kind of sense where it's like one of those kind of racist jokes and I kind of winced because I was like surprised they went that far with that joke and that episode was made during the time of 9-11. Exactly. I'm actually really curious um, if you have ever experienced any sort of racism in your life at all through maybe here in America or even when you travel with either being from immigrant descent or just even by the color of their skin? There's one example that I always, always think of when um, I'm asked this question or whenever I think about, you know, racism in my life. Luckily, I live in the Bay Area, which is very diverse, very inclusive. So I haven't really faced racism here or if I have, it's subtle and I just didn't realize. But I remember I went to Vegas or Reno or somewhere in Nevada, somewhere on the border of California and Nevada with my family. And my mom has a darker skin tone than I do. And I look, I've been told I look Hispanic, which is just, I guess, I mean, I don't know what. I can kind of see it now, actually. Yeah, just a little bit. People don't think I, I don't look like a traditional Indian person. Um, so I remember we were all in the elevator and there's this one lady from California and one lady from Nevada. The one lady from California was talking to my family and, you know, just being very nice. But the one lady from Nevada was giving my mom such dirty, disgusting looks and was treating her as like, she was, it was very clear that she was considering her a lesser being. So I will never forget that. I was like, wow, that's so, we're neighboring states, but nothing alike. Because, yeah, I think California is seen as one of those places that's very liberal and progressive and we're kind of inclusive. But I think there's also the fact that racism does happen in California, even like you said, on the border of California and Nevada, and how different kind of states and different regions are really different in their kind of racist ideas and their behaviors. Yeah. And that's not to say that racism is not in the Bay Area. There's a lot of racist people. Yeah, there definitely is. Um, where we are from. and But I've just been kind of either oblivious to it or... Um, it's just so rare that I kind of maybe forgot about it, which is a good thing. I don't want to remember it. 
but I just, I will never forget that. I was like, wow, that was so weird. Follow-up question is, do you think the movements and what some people call revolutions against poli police brutality and, you know, uh, standing up for people of color that have suffered for a long time in this country, especially black people, do you think that's going to affect our lives in the future and how we look at things? I think it's definitely going to, especially for our generation and younger kids. They're going to look back at this and realize that there is change that needs to be made and we're going to see adults in our lives, you know, kids going on their phones, parents turning on the news, and the kids listening, even though the parents don't realize it, that there are people that are trying to make a change. And I think it's really starting to bring up more conversations like this within families to make sure that kids who do grow up don't grow up with these kind of racist beliefs. As you may have noticed, our conversation started a little choppy in the beginning because it's always hard to talk about racism, no matter what race you are. But as we began truthfully answering questions, the conversation became more comfortable and authentic. The best way to stop racism is to start having these uncomfortable conversations and being authentic. So on that note, what can us teenagers do to support anti-racism and Black Lives Matter movement in America? So one of the things you can do, obviously, is attending protests, but of course, that's not always an option for people, especially during this time of the pandemic. So you can also sign petitions, um, you can make Black Lives Matter posters, and most importantly, have these kinds of conversations. Whether you're a teenager or not, having these kinds of conversations are not only important, but necessary for us to exterminate racism in America and just all around the world. And so we hope our conversation highlights how racism affects multiple generations, thus the nation as a whole. We also hope our conversation provided insight into how racism is different in different nations and how it affects the entire world internationally. We encourage everyone to have open conversations as we work to find solutions against police brutality and call out racist behaviors. Again, thank you for joining us on ThinkScope. I'm Megan Mehta. And I'm Alexis Bondarenko. We'll talk to you next month with another chat. This episode was co-created, co-hosted, and co-written by Megan Mehta and Alexis Bondarenko. Alexis Bondarenko is the primary producer for this episode and ThinkScope. Megan Mehta is the graphic designer, social media marketing manager, and web manager for ThinkScope. The first song in this episode is Wall Game Loop. Second song is Past Sadness, and lastly, Funk Aroma. All songs are by Kevin McLeod and are available at Incompetech, .filmmusic.io This episode was distributed by Anchor. Thanks for listening.